The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. today on this broadcast asking for your Holy Spirit to bring deep conviction of heart, a revelation, an opening. Lord, our hearts in this American culture have been so damaged. We've become so calloused and so hard and so proud in what we think we know. Lord, would you unveil our eyes today? Would you let us see clearly the steps necessary to be made holy? Lord, remove from us the veil, the lie of this cheap grace. Lord, I trust you today, and I trust what you're going to do now in the heart of every person listening And we will praise you. We'll worship you. I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. In Hebrews, the second chapter, let's review quickly. Verse 1, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. And this word drift away is used in the sense that you are stable here and cross currents come into your life and begin to cause you to lose your place until finally you have been cast on the rocks. Now the difficulty we have is if we assume that we have that place of security, but in fact we still are unholy, then we live in a delusional realm. I said to one dear person, are you certain you've been born again? Because the behavior I see in your life tells me you probably have never been born from above. She flew into a fit of rage and said, I am a mature Christian, and I am saved, and I'm not going to reconsider whether I'm saved or not. The problem was, she was screaming this at me. The rage was so evident, it was obvious she was not walking in the spirit of Jesus. And that rage manifested itself many times at different people in the church, It manifests itself against her family, against outsiders. She was a very angry person, but who wanted the assumption to remain that she was saved, that she was holy, when she was utterly unholy. I want you to consider carefully your position in Jesus Christ. 
does your life evidence pride, self-centeredness, or is there a spirit of humility that you walk in? Do you walk in a spirit of gentleness? Do you have a bitter root that constantly is poisoning your relationships? Do you have a bitter root that rises up against your supervisors? Do you have a bitter root that rises up against your wife or your husband or your children? Then you've not been born from above. Now, the lie of our culture that we are exposing as we carefully study the book of Hebrews verse by verse is that, in fact, a person who has been saved has entered into salvation. You cannot enter into salvation without being saved from your sins. That means you no longer walk in them. If you continue to walk in them and claim that you're saved, you're living in a delusional world. I want to share some other scriptures with you. We have much to cover today, so I'm going to go very rapidly. I urge you, take a pencil and paper and jot down the passages of scripture I'm going to share with you and go back and carefully examine these scriptures. In this second chapter that we covered yesterday in verse 2, it says, For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? That is, being saved from our sins, having the bondage broken, being a changed person being transformed into the likeness of Jesus so that our testimony is that of the apostle Paul from the book of Galatians I have been crucified with Christ I have been crucified with Christ nevertheless I live yet not I but Christ who dwells in me is that your experience on more than simply a cheap, sentimental basis? Is the reality of Jesus Christ totally in charge of your life, demonstrated by your behavior and by your words? Or are you still walking in sin? Verse 11, this is Hebrews 2, verse 11, both the author of their salvation was made perfect through suffering. Jesus was made perfect, that is, he was matured through suffering. But the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. This suffering issue is huge. Let's look quickly. I hadn't planned to do this, but let's look at it quickly. Romans, the eighth chapter. Romans, the eighth chapter. And we're going to look at verse, at verse 17. Romans 8, verse 17. 
I have so many scriptures that I have set aside for today. I hadn't planned on this one. Okay, here we are. Romans 8, verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Well, what are the sufferings that Jesus experienced? Well, the scriptures tell us that he suffered as he was tempted. Temptation is the suffering he endured. Now, he also endured the suffering of the cross and of being utterly rejected. But the Bible is specifically addressing for us the suffering of the tempter, of the temptation. If you do not enter into that suffering by rejecting the devil's temptation, by saying no to sin, you cannot be made holy. That is what the crucifixion is about. Why did Jesus say, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me? And he was on his way to Golgotha. So the suffering is the denial of self and the lust of the heart. The suffering is saying no to the devil. The suffering is rejecting the devil's way, rejecting the sin. He says, both the ones, the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. Now, if we go back once more to the book of Romans, the first chapter, let me read how Paul introduces for you this question of righteousness or holiness. He says in chapter 1 of Romans, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Or, I'm not ashamed of the good news. Well, what is the good news? Because certainly, if I have to work by the way of the law to be righteous, that's not good news. And if I have to continue in my worldly life, that's not good news. Listen to what the good news is. Because it is the power of God. And the word power here comes from the word dunamis in the Greek, which we have found our word dynamite from. So it is literally because it is the dynamite of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. It is for salvation. It is for the saving from sin. In other words, there is 
power, there is dynamite, there is explosive power being released on our behalf to deliver us from sin. Now notice Paul describes now how this happens. For in the gospel, in the good news, a righteousness that is an innocence from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So if you say, I'm saved, but you walk in wickedness, you are lying. You must be made holy. You must be made righteous. And this righteousness comes by faith from Jesus, but it is real righteousness. It is not as is wont to be said today, imputed righteousness. That word is never used in the New Testament. The New Testament only knows about imparted righteousness, that is, real righteousness, that is given to us by faith. We are made holy by the power of the blood of Jesus, this dynamite that is being released. That's why I keep saying to you, this transition from sin to righteousness is a supernatural act of God. And if you do not engage with Jesus in repentance, in denial of self, if you are not willing to suffer, you'll never be crucified with Christ and you will never be brought into this experience of the supernatural power of God where now you are no longer a son of Adam, you are a son of the living God. You have died and been born from above. This is a total change and a total transition. The Bible uses the word, uh, how do I say it? metamorphosis a metamorphosis where a worm is changed into a butterfly where a sinner is changed into a saint if you've not been through that process called crucifixion if you have not suffered you can't be made holy holiness comes from the crucifixion, and from the being born from above. It does not come by being a member of a church. Some of you, frankly, can I be straight? The cry of your heart is for money. The cry of your heart is for entertainment. When you have a few minutes of spare time, you sit down and watch the television or you sit down and watch the ball game. There's nothing in your heart that says pick up the word and read it and meditate and seek Jesus because he's a concept to you. He's not real. He's not a person to you because your mind is mechanically oriented, not organically oriented. What would happen if you related to your husband or your wife in a mechanical way? 
you'd have no bonds of fellowship. You'd have no bonds of love. Our relationship with Jesus grows. It's not unplug the evil and plug in the righteous and now it's all over. Yes, there is a supernatural transition, but it is an organic transition and it is brought about by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now let's go to the study for today. Chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling. So chapter 3, he wants to begin speaking to people who have gone through the crucifixion. Hebrews is about understanding why you have to make that transition and then the process that you go through as you begin to grow in grace Grace is defined in Scripture as teaching us by the book of Titus, teaching us to say no to ungodliness. Grace and sin do not exist in the same space. They are utterly alienated one from the other. Grace is the divine influence of God that begins to come upon your heart and your life, uncovering your wickedness and causing you to utterly turn from it, to deny it, to cast it out in the name of Jesus. That's why Genesis 3.15 is such a precious promise, the first promise of a Messiah. It says there would be hatred or enmity between the devil and the church. So one of the prayers that I pray is, O oh God, show me anything evil that remains in my heart and put great enmity between me and that thing. Put enmity between me and my pride. Let all pride be cast down. Let all self-sufficiency be cast down. Let these things be filled with hatred that I would not want them any longer. Now there are some temptations that come to me that are very painful. And one of those temptations that comes to my heart on occasion is to be discouraged. I received a wonderful letter this week from a dear person. She's become a friend. She's been a donor for quite some time to this broadcast. And this month she said, I'm retired, so pastor... I don't have any money to send, but I wanted to just write to you and encourage you. Don't be discouraged. I'm grateful for righteous people who come with righteous counsel and encouragement. And I thank each of you who not only donate, but sometimes just write letters to me of encouragement. I have to deal with this issue of discouragement, and I'll tell you what it's connected to. It's connected to some faint belief in my heart that I still must be productive. I'm an American. And if I don't see progress, if I don't see productivity, my heart grows discouraged and I think I have to try harder. 
I'm asking the Lord to utterly put enmity between me and all discouragement because discouragement can cause us to turn away to our own feelings rather than turning to Jesus Christ. Now, Hebrews is warning us about this. I want to read the rest of this verse, and you'll see what I mean. Chapter 3, verse 1 in the book of Hebrews, Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. You see, if I have my eyes fixed on Jesus, He provided the full atonement at the cross. So productivity is now not by my hard work. It's by the work of the Spirit. It is by the the magnificent dunamis or dynamite power of God as He works in your hearts. And one of the beliefs that I have out of the depths of Scripture is that God is constantly by the work of His Holy Spirit working in your heart to call you to Himself. It is the belief in the continuous work of the Holy Spirit to make people come to Jesus and be transformed, to be made in the image of Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So part of what I've had to do is every time discouragement begins to rear its head, I have to recognize that that discouragement comes out of my own pride. Everything is connected. It's like a spider web. And so to cut that thing off, I know one of the core roots to discouragement is pride. I should be doing better. I should be accomplishing more. No, I'm to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus. And he's responsible for what is accomplished. Can I cause the Holy Spirit to come in power as on the day of Pentecost? No, that's Jesus' choice where and when he will bring revival. All I can do is humble my heart before him and not become discouraged when I don't see things working the way I think they ought to work. As I come to the end of the month and there is not sufficient funds to pay for this broadcast, I sometimes have grown discouraged. And then I have done an offertory and maybe only half of the money needed will come in. And I've allowed that to discourage my heart. And the Lord has soundly rebuked me time after time until finally I know now, do not be discouraged. That's rooted in pride. And I've asked Jesus, and he's doing this in me. I testify. He is putting hatred in my heart toward this false pride. Thus, toward all discouragement. I do not have the right. I do not have the privilege to grow discouraged. It's a sign of my own trusting in self rather than having my eyes on Jesus. Some of you are depressed today. 
because you don't have the money you think you need. Or you don't have the friendship you think you want. Or you lack in some area. I'm telling you that depression is a sign of pride. Depression and discouragement are the opposite side of anger. Anger and discouragement go hand in hand because after we become sufficiently discouraged or depressed, we'll flip the coin and we'll be enraged, we'll be angry, and we'll cut people off and we'll treat people horribly because of our discouragement and then our anger. The Lord is saying, no, deny yourself, cut it off. Don't walk in it. Instead, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Don't allow yourself to sink down and to allow these side currents to pull you away from that which is the foundation, Jesus. So the writer of Hebrews says, fix your thoughts on Jesus. The apostle and the high priest, whom we confess. What does the word apostle mean? The word apostle is used when the Sanhedrin, the top legislative body, the judicial body of the Jewish people, they make a ruling and they send a person to the party involved with the decision that has been made regarding their case. That person in Jewish history was called an apostle. We have the twelve apostles. These men were apostles because they were coming with the decision made by God that he accepted the atoning blood of Jesus and now you can be made holy by it. That's the gospel. An apostle brings the gospel, or he brings bad news that you are judged and cast out. So the apostle brings the good news that you can be made holy, that Jesus will then call you a brother or a sister. You will be family with Jesus but only if you've been made holy. He says, He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. What was God's house? The children of Israel. They were his house. Where is God's house now? You, me, if we've been made holy, are God's house. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit, and it's his intention to build us as building stones into what he calls the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. Now, the problem comes when the church has been built by men and women who are not temples of the Holy Spirit. And so now this temple, but not of the Holy Spirit, becomes a habitation of darkness of entertainment, of foolishness. 
it becomes a habitation of false teaching. It becomes a habitation of sin. And so you have pastors today that are teaching you that you can walk in sin and still be saved. And now you're built into a church. And you're only half converted. You only have the information and not all of the information. You've got a bunch of false information that tells you that you're saved in spite of not being holy. And then you have a culture. The culture will always reflect the religion of its people. A people's religion shapes the culture. And then you have leaders, you have political leaders who are chosen as a reflection of the people who are a reflection of their religion and their faith. And suddenly we see in America wicked men and women being chosen and appointed to leadership positions in the political realm of our nation, which takes us back to an ungodly people who've never been made holy, who are now going increasingly into the sewer of ungodliness, of wickedness. You see transgenderism, you see homosexuality, you see violence on every hand. You see tyranny beginning to grow. You see freedoms being lost. You see the dollar being ready to crash. You see debt increasing. All of these come back to the people's religion. Torqueville, that that great researcher, said, What has made America great? And he said, Because the people are good because the pulpits of America burn with righteousness. Well, the pulpits of America don't burn with righteousness anymore. They burn with success philosophies, with feel-good stuff. They, they burn with entertainment and money and business. So today's pastors are program managers and CEOs and CFOs. They're not preachers of righteousness anymore. And so the people reflect the ungodliness of the pulpits. And as the people reflect the ungodliness of the pulpit, they select ungodly leaders. And then we begin to lose our freedoms because freedom comes from God. Liberty is a gift of God. If you look at any of the nations of the world, from Africa to China, if you look at the nations of the world, India, Japan, you will see that their culture all reflects their religious beliefs. If you look at Islam, you look at Saudi Arabia, the center, you look at Turkey, the center of the Islamic beliefs, You find there women mistreated, disrespected. You see violence. ISIS is simply an accurate reflection 
of the Prophet Muhammad. They have simply carried out the fullness of what Muhammad commanded. This man who was a pedophile, this man who was unclean, this man who directed violence against those who would not behave as he thought they should. And you see this as a whole culture now. And it is infiltrating Europe, and it will destroy the Western world. It is a judgment from God against Germany, against England. They've now chosen a radical Islamic man to be the mayor of London. Allah Akbar now is written on red buses in London. Please understand, these things don't happen by chance. And it all comes back to the religious beliefs that are held by the people that they have received from their religious instructors and people. It's amazing to watch. as I have in my lifetime. A whole nation that at one point trusted in the Lord God of heaven to see that nation totally cast off Jesus Christ and then to watch that nation drift into tyranny. to watch that nation begin to be stripped of its freedoms. We are losing America. No, I'm going to be even more straight. America is lost. America is dead. And the only hope for America is that the men who stand and the women who stand in the pulpits of America will repent and turn from the false teachings that they have proclaimed and begin to teach righteousness and holiness. And immediately their churches will empty out. And they're not going to do that because if the churches empty out, they can't pay their mortgage bill because they've gone in debt to pay their huge mega church facilities. I can assure you, if a man of righteousness were to go into one of the mega churches in Washington, D.C., and begin to preach the true word of God, within two weeks they would have their congregation reduced by three quarters. And it wouldn't take very long until those congregations would be numbered and the finances would collapse and the pastors could not then have their big salaries and their benefits. And the churches would collapse. And they'd be gone. It's time to turn back to the Lord Jesus or our nation will never be revived. It will never turn from its sin. 
it will only go deeper and deeper into the morass. But our pastors want their lifestyle. They want their hundred plus thousand dollars a year salaries. They want their benefit package. One man who was invited to come and pastor a specific congregation that I'm very well acquainted with began to negotiate with the board or the vestry over what his salary would be. And when they finally could agree on a salary that was acceptable to him and to the board, they then went the next step and began to negotiate the benefit package. Just like any person would do who was taking a secular job. I said, what is this? Is he a hireling? It's wrong. The church is not a business. The ministry is not a profession. It's a ministry. So we come to this third chapter of the book of Hebrews. It says, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as a builder of a house was, has greater honor than the house itself, for every house is built by someone. But God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's house, testifying to what he said was in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. The church is a family. It's not a business. Yes, it has to deal with money. Yes, it has a budget. But it's a family. It's not a business. It's not an institution. It's a family. Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house, if we hold on to our courage and hope of which we boast. What do we boast of? We boast that we have been cleansed and washed and made holy. We boast that we walk without sin in this life. We boast that the transforming power of Jesus Christ cleansed us from all sin. We boast that we are filled by the Holy Spirit. We boast that the coming of Jesus is imminent. We boast that we no longer trust in the flesh, but trust entirely in Jesus Christ. We boast that our eyes are kept on Jesus and not on the world. We boast in Jesus Christ. And it says Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house. If we hold on to our courage and hope of which we boast, if we don't give way to discouragement and drift into sin and drift into unbelief and drift back into the world and walk as the world walks, if America is to be saved, America is going to have to be holy. If America is going to survive, if liberty is to exist in this nation and we are not to be under the boot of a dictator, if we are not going to be torn apart with civil war, if we're not going to see every unclean thing lifted up and glorified, 
then we are going to have to be made holy. And holiness only comes from denying ourself, taking up our cross, and being crucified with Jesus Christ, and turning from our wicked ways, and waking up, waking up to the dire threat that faces us, the loss of our nation, the loss of our churches, the loss of our freedoms, the loss of our families. I can't tell you how many precious mothers and fathers I speak to who say to me, Pastor, would you pray for my children? I've lost my children. And they don't know why they've lost their children. They don't think to go back and look at their history and see how they fed their children a diet of television, fed their children a diet of entertainment, fed their diet fed their children a diet of of sports. They don't understand how they utterly neglected the righteous teachings that they were supposed to give their children. They forget they've not modeled Jesus Christ. And now their children have departed and are on the road to hell and are going deeper and deeper into darkness. And they say, Pastor, would you pray for my children? I say to them, are you sure you want me to pray for your children? Because this is the prayer I'm going to have to pray for them. I'm going to pray for your child. That they have everything stripped away from them. That they are brought into great crisis in their life. That they are brought face to face with a reality that they have no ability to provide for themselves. That they must face the consequence of their sin And I'm going to pray that they will repent and turn back to God. And that you and them together will humbly walk before God in love, in repentance, in salvation from all sin. Now, do you still want me to pray for your son or daughter? Sometimes people look at me like I'm crazy and say, no, don't pray that. Just pray that they'll be converted. No, I can't just pray that they'll be converted. To be converted means you leave the world behind. There has to be a crisis. This is crisis salvation. And I'm going to tell you, there is only one kind of salvation that America will respond to at this point. There's only one chance for America. And that is if God brings a great crisis upon this nation and strips away our finances. And even then, many will not turn. God is going to have to bring famine to America. He's going to have to bring judgment upon America. And I've been praying for a number of years, Lord, bring that judgment on America, but bring it not unto destruction. Bring that judgment unto repentance in America. Now, some of you listening today, I don't mean to step on your toes, but some of you have a great deal to say about the political life of America, and you are very firm in your convictions about conservatism. And you will toot your horn loudly about how horrible everything is. And at the same time, 
You don't go to church. You don't repent of your sin. You want your life the way it is. You're not willing to get serious with Jesus. And you're so foolish, you believe that America can be changed by the right president or the right Congress or the right judicial system. It cannot be. They are a reflection of the wickedness of the people of America. And if you want that to change, you have to change. You have to turn back to Jesus. Are you willing? Are you willing to turn back to Jesus? Are you willing to be crucified with Christ? Are you willing to ask the Lord to put hatred in your heart toward all of the pet sins that you cuddle? Are you willing to ask Jesus to make you hate those favorite addictions of your life? Like entertainment or drugs or alcohol or having a pleasant life? Are you willing to ask Jesus to put enmity in your heart against everything that is not of Jesus? Now, if you do that, radical changes are going to occur in your life. You will be changed. Change comes as a miraculous supernatural work of God as he influences our minds and our hearts, our emotions. He comes and begins to circumcise and change us into his likeness, but it will be painful. You will suffer. You know, when you're going down a a rut, that rut will lead you to hell. And if you're going to get out of that rut, you're going to have to be willing to allow Jesus to pick you up and put you on a different road. It means change. And some of you would rather die than change. And you'd rather comfort yourself that you're saved, even though you know you're walking unholy before God. But you've been taught by the modern preachers, don't worry, you're saved, you're on your way to heaven, you're good. No, you're not good. And you're not on your way to heaven. And hell is going to be filled with people who will be very surprised to find themselves there. Are you one of those? In chapter 3, Verse 7, so as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. As you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why 
I was angry with that generation. I can tell you today, without any doubt in my heart, with absolute certainty, God is angry with America and Western culture. The wrath of God is against America. He is against our president. He is against our Supreme Court. He is against our Congress. He is angry with the preachers of America and with the people of America. And that wrath is going to result in death in America. The wrath of God against America will result in death in America. It always has in every age against every culture that has done what we have done from pre-flood with Noah as he destroyed the whole world except Noah and his family. As he destroyed the Babylonian Empire. As he destroyed each of the great empires that have ruled on this earth. Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and now the scattered empires that fight one another. And in the divine, supernatural power and love of the Lord God of heaven, he raised up America. He has given America the grace he has never given to any people save the children of Israel. But he also destroyed their nation and had Jerusalem burned and the temple burned and sent them in bondage to Egypt, sent them in bondage to Babylon, sent them in bondage to those nations, Assyria, till he almost destroyed them from the earth. Even the Romans came and burned Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And Jesus said it was because they rejected the Messiah. America is going to burn. And the only hope is that the grace of God will turn the preachers of America and the people of the church to repent and to get right with God. And that's almost impossible because of the false beliefs we've clung to. So it is going to be such a supernatural work of God. Chapter 3, verse 10, That is why I was angry with that generation, and I said their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. So I declare on oath in my anger, they will never enter my rest. And that word rest means cessation. But the deeper meaning of the word rest is bedroom, place of repose, place of intimacy with God. He's saying, because of their sin, 
I would not allow them to enter my bedroom. Two minutes, Pastor. I would not allow intimacy with them. Our time is up. Lord, come with your Holy Spirit. Come in mercy. Arouse your pastors. Arouse your church. Don't turn away from us in anger. Lord, in your mercy, turn our hearts back to you, Jesus. Awaken us by the power of your Spirit. Lord, you did it in times past. You did it in the Welsh Revival. You did it at Azusa Street where you birthed Pentecostalism. Lord, you've done it in the Jesus movement. Lord, do it again. Please, oh Lord, turn your people back to righteousness and holiness. I pray in your holy name. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Pastor Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of God.